Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. There is no normal. There is only us. There is only a group of human beings doing the best they can. And I wish that we could follow the lead of disability advocates and just people who are showing us a different way to live and a different way to think about our fellow human beings. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are thrilled to be here with you today celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. This landmark legislation is a massively important part of our country's history and deserves um, the attention it's getting this year during such an important milestone. So we are going to do two things. Today, we're going to walk you through the five things you need to know about the ADA And then on Tuesday's show, we're going to share interviews with experts and people who have really been impacted by the ADA. So that's the plan. 
As we get started, I want to say a little word about our language in this episode, because this is an area where there's a lot of debate, healthy debate, I think, about the words that we use to describe what we're talking about. Disability is controversial in some circles. We're going to use that word here today because it is the language of our laws, and it's also the language that consistently comes up as you research advocacy in this space. But I hope that you know, whatever language you prefer, that we are open to learning about that and that everything we say today comes from a place of real respect. And our intention is to lift up people who are looking for greater accessibility in our society. And we'll do our best with the words that we use as we describe that intention. So there are 61 million adults in the United States living with a disability. 26%, that is one in four of adults in the United States have some type of disability. I mean, that is a massive impact when you pass legislation that affects that group. You know, people with disabilities are the largest minority group in our country and in the world. And this legislation is the most sweeping civil rights legislation in American history, not just because of the size of that group, but because of the depth of its impact in the areas of our everyday life that it touched. So the first thing that we want you to know about the Americans with Disabilities Act is that it took decades of thousands of people working in really local grassroots ways to get us to the eventual passage of the ADA. And there are some very dramatic stories along the path here. So dramatic. So dramatic. And it was a Long, long journey. So some of the earliest disability laws you see in the United States relate to pension guarantees for wounded veterans. You see that after the Revolutionary War. Here's a fun fact. I have record of my one of my ancestors swearing a testimony so somebody, a disabled veteran, could get a pension. So we see that pattern. Veterans return from war with disabilities, and the country really has to confront this conflict that we have between valuing veterans and for decades of our country's history, for most of our country's history, excluding those citizens with disabilities from everyday life. This conflict comes up again after World War II. And at that time, we also have this surge in polio and the impact that it has on children who've suffered from polio. Many of these children and other adults with disabilities started attending summer camps and centers for independent living in the 1960s, and those experiences started to transform them into an activist mindset. Before that, you really only had local grassroots efforts to confront real, present, everyday issues. You know, it blows my mind to think about in the 1960s, Public restrooms were not accessible if you were in a wheelchair. That is not long ago. In the 1960s, that was true. When we had public telephones, they did not have Braille signage so that everyone could use them. And so people started advocating in more of a social model, working with each other to focus on accommodations instead of on the individual's impairment. I think these stories from the summer camps are so touching. Because it reminds me of the quote from John Lewis that I can't stop thinking about, that you have to envision the future. And I think what those camps were was like a vision of what it could be like. What if we weren't excluded? 
What if we weren't pushed aside? What if we realize we have more in common? I mean, I think what you see with these camps and some of these centers for independent living is an alignment between disabled groups. Before, you know, it wasn't as if deaf people and blind people or paralyzed people felt like, oh, well, we have all these things in common. And I think these the camps and this shift to not only a, a vision of what's possible, but that we could work for that future together, that we have interests, political interests that align. And that shift from just thinking about it as an impairment to thinking about it as almost like an identity. You know, that's the, I'm reading Far From the Tree, Andrew Solomon's book, and it's that two areas he really explores in depth. This shift between the spectrum of experience between illness and identity. And I think in these with these camps, you see that push for identity and the belief that we deserve accommodations as American citizens. So all of that activism gave us our first piece of federal legislation around accessibility, which is Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. This law was passed in 1973, and it banned discrimination against people with disabilities in federal employment. Nobody knows exactly how this language got into Section 504. So fascinating. I need a podcast. I'm going to just put it out into the universe. Will someone create a podcast series trying to solve the mystery of how Section 504 came to be? Like, because that is amazing to me. So here's what it says. No otherwise qualified individual with a disability in the United States, as defined in Section 705, subsection 20 of this title, shall, solely by reason of her or his disability, be excluded from the participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance or under any program or activity conducted by any executive agency or by the United States Postal Service. So that brought the language of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to the world of disabilities. And suddenly, as Sarah was talking about, we really have moved beyond looking at individual issues to seeing being a person with a disability as an identity. Well, and here's the thing. So because some staffer just put Section 504 in there, the federal government was not exactly prepared to deal with this. And as they're always were. Um, There were concerns within the business community and the education community about how are we going to deal with this? And the Federal Department of Health, Education and Welfare had been tasked with writing the regulations. Okay, well, we have Section 504. How are we going to implement it? And four years after the passage, they had still not written those regulations. And the community that was calling for this was getting a real, real frustrated. And so you start to see the intensity of the protesters and the intensity of the demonstrations themselves really dial up. So on April 5th, 1977, demonstrators from across the country were holding protests outside local offices for the Health Education and Welfare Agency across the country. But in San Francisco, the protesters occupied the Health Education and Welfare Office and stayed for weeks. They cut off the power lines. They cut off the water to the to the protesters to try to get them out. And there's this great story about how when we talk about the intersectionality of so many identities, that there was a protester who had experience with the Black Panther Party and the Black Panther Party brought them supplies into 
the offices, like water and other things they needed because they didn't expect to stay that long. But they had the sense like if we give up, all is lost. If we don't hold our ground on this thing, if we don't hold our ground on Section 504, then we're never going to be able to demand anything else. So we have the RHA, and one of the major things that came from that legislation was the Architectural and Transportation Barriers Compliance Board. That sounds real boring, right? But that is a critical piece of ensuring that federal buildings are accessible. And if you think about buildings as they existed in the 1960s and as many still exist today, it is very difficult to even find spaces large enough for mobility assistance devices to make their way through. And so that the creation of that board was really important. The next step happened in 1975 when we saw the passage of the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, and that was later amended. We have talked about this in depth in our episode about the IDEA, so that's a really good companion to this conversation. But that legislation mandated inclusion of children with disabilities in public schools. According to the Congressional Research Service, one million children with disabilities were excluded entirely from the public school system in the 1970s. A million kids. I can't imagine that. And the stories the activists from this time tell are just unbelievable. I listened to this an interview with Lex Frieden on the Bush Institute's podcast, and he talked about applying to Oral Roberts University after he was paralyzed in a car wreck, and they just said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't accept handicapped students. We don't just because. And he was like, but I'm a valedictorian. I have all these things. I can work through that. Because they had just built the campus, and he knew that the buildings were accessible. And they're like, oh, no, we just, we don't accept anyone with a handicap. It was mind blowing to listen to this interview. It was not that long ago. And that's college. Just think about the kids who couldn't even get started. One million children excluded from the public school system because of disabilities. And that limitation didn't just begin or end in the school system. I mean, it's it was really an issue of freedom of movement. And that's why you see a tremendous amount of activism around the issue of transportation before the ADA. Before the passage of this legislation, only two transit systems in the entire United States were accessible. And activists on these issues staged some really dramatic protest. On July 5th, 1978, a group of 19 people gathered at a really busy intersection in Denver, got out of their wheelchairs and laid down in traffic. And that led to the formation of the Americans Disabled for Accessible Public Transit. They called them ADAPT. And I heard Lex Freedom describe them as basically like the Hells Angels of disability activists. Like, they did some really intense demonstrations, chaining themselves to the grills of buses, refusing to leave, laying down at intersections, just bringing a massive amount of attention to this issue. The dates here really start to pull me into a different way of thinking about our society because I'm recognizing this is stuff that happened while I was alive. This is within Mm -hmm. my lifetime that we were having these issues. 1986, the National Council on Disability recommended an equal opportunity law to Congress. And the goal of that law was to combine multiple disparate pieces of legislation into one Civil Rights Act for people with disabilities. It just gives me chills to think about the passage of a Civil Rights Act within my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And it lets me know how much I have oriented myself into this belief that you see as a recurring theme in our politics that, like, we're done. We solved these things. And we, we are not even close to being done. So a task force gets established around this idea. 
This is crazy. Okay, so the task force, Lex Frieden was on this task force, and they were supposed to present their report to President Reagan. And then the day they were supposed to present the report, the Challenger explosion happened. So they were like, well, you can go present it to Vice President Bush. And they're like, okay. They tell him, you're going to have like 10 minutes. But they get in there. And this, look, this came from the the Bush Institute's podcast. So I'm not saying that they're biased, not biased. But it was like the most touching story. They talked about like then Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush came in and said, I want to sit down. I read that me and Barbara read the whole thing last night. We had a child that struggled with a learning disability, which I'm assuming they're talking about W. We had a child who had died of childhood cancer. This is important. We need to do this. And they he's like, you know, it's just the, a fluke of history because Ronald Reagan, you know, that was not the Reagan's administration's priority, but it really became the Bush administration's priority. And so they he really worked with them and then, of course, became president. The ADA was presented in 1988, passed the Senate in 1989, and passed the House and was signed into law by President Herbert Walker Bush in 1990. And again, this was through extraordinary effort, extraordinary effort. This is another unbelievable story. So on March 13th, 1990, I was nine years old when this happened. Over a thousand people marched from the White House to the Capitol to demand passage of the ADA. And more than 60 people got out of their wheelchairs or otherwise abandoned their mobility devices to crawl up the 89 steps that lead to the U.S. Capitol. And if you have never seen pictures of this, I urge you to look at our show notes and follow those links and see them. It will change you. Mm. This Capitol crawl was a physical demonstration. The people's buildings were inaccessible to so many people. So the Capitol crawl happens. The next day, more than 100 people were arrested during a protest in the rotunda of the Capitol. These folks pretended that they were taking a tour, and when they got to the rotunda, they just sat down or stood right where they were and demanded to see the Speaker of the House. So through so many efforts, including some of those really dramatic displays that were very unkindly described by senators at the time as a real inconvenience, Mm. the ADA gets passed. And what the ADA says is that it is going to provide broad protection for people with disabilities from discrimination in certain spaces. And those spaces are state and local government services, places of public accommodation, employment for employers with 15 or more employees, telecommunications, and transportation. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick-dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. So let's move on to the second thing you need to know. Defining disability under the ADA is a very fact intensive. So what is a disability? The ADA defines it as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activity. And so people who have disabilities and are protected by this act include people with that physical or mental impairment Sarah just described, people who have a record of having an impairment like that, or people who are regarded as having such an impairment, because we also don't want discrimination on the basis of someone's perception that a person has a disability, even if they do not. So the ADA doesn't provide an exhaustive list of what it counts as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. It's not like a diagnostic manual. Okay, that's not what this, that's not what they were trying to do. So because the main form of enforcement of the ADA is lawsuit, it's not like there's a bureau that enforces the ADA. It's enforced through litigation. Some impairments that have been ruled as covered by the ADA, AIDS, 
alcoholism, asthma, blindness, cancer, depression, epilepsy, migraines, paralysis, pregnancy complications, thyroid disorders, heart disease, or a loss of body parts. And then conditions that have been considered not impairments. And these are just representative samples. We'd be here all day and night if we were trying to give you every single thing that has been considered in litigation. But these are things that courts have said are not impairments. A healthy pregnancy, old age, a lack of education, broken bones that are expected to heal completely, compulsive gambling, and sprained joints. Courts have also said that casual drug use is not a disability, but there are circumstances under which addiction is considered an impairment that counts as a disability under the ADA. Not all impairments, physical or mental, are constant, right? We have different experiences. I have fibromyalgia, I was diagnosed in 2007. The first few years of having fibromyalgia for me were awful. There were moments when I had to ask my husband for help washing my hair. There were moments when I could not sleep. My legs were in such pain. It was a really awful time for me. And I learned over several years how to manage most of the symptoms of fibromyalgia. The ADA would ask what does this look like at its worst about my condition to, to decide if I have it or not? It would not measure my best day to determine whether I qualify for protection under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So as you can tell, this is all very fact specific. And when these cases go to court, it's an invasive, intensive inquiry to determine whether a person qualifies for the ADA. And so you see a lot of landmark Supreme Court decisions, either expanding that or restricting that. You have Olmstead v. LC, where two women were diagnosed with schizophrenia, intellectual disability, and personality disorder, and they were in an institutional setting and kept there despite the experts agreeing that they could be moved to a community-based setting. So this case is really seen as the Supreme Court determining that mental illness is a form of disability and that unjustified isolation of a person with a disability is a form of discrimination. However, there were also decisions that really restrict the definition. And in 2008, the Americans with Disabilities Act Amendments Act was signed into law and amended the ADA of 1990. It was to counteract these Supreme Court interpretations that really were narrowing the interpretation of what a disability is. The statute shifted the focus from whether the individual seeking the law's protection fit within the meaning of the statute to whether or not that individual had experienced discrimination. So instead of saying, oh, are we defining you as disabled? It's, are you experiencing discrimination? And in doing so, it increased the number and types of persons protected by the ADA. And think about this. So you have to be able to hire a lawyer and go to court to enforce the ADA. And once you get there, there are so many pieces that you have to demonstrate. You have to get into what is the nature of the impairment. You have to get into... How substantial is its interference in what you do every day? And you have to show that it is interfering substantially with a major life activity. And there is litigation about what constitutes a major life activity. So we know from courts that it includes major bodily functions and basic daily functions like eating, sleeping, standing, walking, preparing a meal, getting dressed into cognition, learning, thinking, reading, and working. But there are things that I would consider a major life activity like grocery shopping or taking care of another human being or driving or the ability to be in a relationship that are not considered major life activities by courts. 
And I just want to emphasize not to get too much in the weeds on the the litigation, but I know from having worked in human resources that many people view this legislation as an incomprehensible pain in their butts. Mm. And I think it's really important to remember that the burden on employers in complying with the ADA is nothing compared to the challenge to a person who already has substantial barriers in front of them Mm -hmm. to get in court, move a lawsuit forward out of just the pleading stage, and win that lawsuit. It is hugely difficult to win a lawsuit under the ADA. Even as this language sounds exceptionally broad, there are so many pitfalls in trying to enforce it. Also important to know, religious organization and entities controlled by religious organizations have no obligations under the ADA. Churches fought hard for this exemption and they got it. Even religious organizations carrying out activities that would otherwise be a public accommodation are exempt from the ADA coverage. And I have lots of thoughts on that. (laughs) I'm trying. It embarrasses me as a person of faith. It's embarrassing. Like, it just, it feels like we got to the, we got to the precipice and we decided buildings were more important than people. As people of faith, like the the ridiculousness of that, the hypocrisy of that, it's just heartbreaking. And I can't imagine how many people, how many people with disabilities, families of those with people with disabilities had their heart broken and were pushed out of the church because we decided buildings were more important. So the third thing we want you to know about the ADA is that it really brought about massive changes that we often take for granted now. Mm-hmm. The ADA really invited the largest minority in America to participate in civic life, where before there had only been stories of exclusion and discrimination. The stories you read about institutions or education or abuse, I mean, in Andrew Solomon's book, I'm reading about the deaf community and how much deaf children were so susceptible to abuse because in so many communities, because of their exclusion from educational systems, for a lot of reasons, they literally had no voice, no voice if they were being abused. And just the ability to move, to leave your home, the most basic act to leave your home, um, and you couldn't do it, or you couldn't participate in television or media or phone calls. I just, it takes your breath away, the challenges that people were facing and the exclusion, the bravery and the resilience and the grit to keep moving forward in the face of that and to fight for something better. Like, it really is, I know that the ADA is not perfect, and I know that our culture has so much further to go. You know, I have a child with disability. We have a lot further to go. It's just, it is it is encouraging, and it is an example of how we can take steps forward and that it can impact millions and millions of people. A lot of changes that were brought about by the ADA are now referenced in tons of conversations about inclusion because you can see the benefit of thinking about a specific person a person that you might not normally think about in a planning process Mm -hmm. and how 
Making sure that that person is included benefits so many other people. Curb cuts are a major illustration of this. Because when you designed curb cuts, you not only benefited people in wheelchairs, but you benefited bikers and people with strollers. When you made automatic doors, you were benefiting people who just had a bunch of stuff in their hands in addition to the people who needed those doors. Entryways Mm -hmm. designed for wheelchairs benefit so many people. So thinking about accessibility always has ripple effects, sometimes that you don't foresee, but that show you how connected we all are. And I even struggle with thinking about people with disabilities as a minority, because the truth is, our bodies, it's just amazing that they work at all ever in any way, Mm -hmm. right? But at some point, each of us is going to encounter something that makes accessibility a challenge for us. And that puts barriers in front of us. And I think if we thought about it more that way, and we'll talk more about this at the end, it would help us through this. So we got these requirements from ADA that employers provide reasonable accommodations to qualified workers so that they could work and participate in commerce. It created equal rights for service in restaurants for people with disabilities and equal pay for workers with disabilities, although that is not perfect. And we will return to that in just a moment. Not to mention, it didn't have just an impact in America. It had an impact around the world. If you are looking for a moment to take a breath and be proud of America, this was the first major piece of national legislation in the world to address systematically the discrimination, barriers, and challenge faced by people with disabilities. And other countries quickly followed suit. Between 1991 There were disability rights laws passed in Luxembourg, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and Sweden, and it culminated in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is sort of known as the Disability Treaty at the UN. This convention was inspired by the ADA, and the U.S. provided important assistance. The United Nations International Convention on the Protection and Promotion of the Rights and Dignities of Persons with Disabilities entered into force in 2008. When the treaty was opened for signature in 2007, it was signed by 82 countries and ratified by one. Currently, 151 countries have ratified it, except for the United States, which was presented. It was presented to the Senate in 2012, but it was not ratified because of concerns about U.S. sovereignty and lame duck congresses, which were not that important. But we still haven't ratified it. Hopefully that will be something we remedy soon. And that really leads us into the fourth thing we want you to know, that as important and sweeping as the Americans with Disabilities Act was, it is not enough. We have a long Mm -mm. way to go. And one area that has changed dramatically since 1990 is technology. Technology is a huge component of infrastructure in all of our lives now. And a study last year revealed that 98% of the 1 million most popular web pages have accessibility barriers for individuals with disabilities. And the trajectory here is that the problem's getting worse, not better. Well, like, it's just stuff you don't think about. Like, I was listening to an interview with one of the reporters from the New York Times, and they were talking about, okay, well, when Twitter or Instagram, and you think I would have thought about this because I add captions to my own videos on Instagram, but, like, when they add the option for people to just roll up and do video, there's no captions. So all of a sudden, an entire part of the platform's content 
is off limits. So in 2016, the National Federation of the Blind filed a class action lawsuit against Target, alleging that their website violated the ADA and arguing that places of accommodation apply to website. It was settled, and now the National Federation of the Blind and Target are partners, and they're really working on accessibility. But this problem still exist. Even if Target has joined forces and realized the error of their ways, there are still millions of websites that don't have accessibility. Well, think about it. With the major social media platforms, it is hard to add those captions. It mm-hmm. takes a lot of work and a lot of time and yeah. doesn't work well every time. It It is just not something that's built into the DNA of how this stuff is running, and it really should be. So in 2010, we did get the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, which was signed by then-President Barack Obama, and it amended the Communications Act of 1934 to update the requirements for accessibility of modern telecommunications for people with disabilities. But it's still really focused on top television networks and non-broadcast channels. Like, that's really playing catch-up as far as TV and doesn't really get to all the problems with technology, particularly with social media platforms. In addition to tech accessibility, physical accessibility is still a huge problem in many buildings. Some buildings are exempt from ADA requirements because of the age of the buildings. Some of them are exempt, as Sarah said, because they are affiliated with religious institutions. I thought this list of questions I found in an article that we'll put in the show notes was really helpful. If you're looking at a building, you need to ask yourself, is there a place to park here? Once I park in that place, is there an accessible route to the door? Is the door wide enough for anyone to come in? And once you're in, is there a route all throughout the space where someone can go where they need to go? And I think this is a really hard reality, especially as many of us have fallen in love with really chic updates of very old buildings and maintaining the old character of those buildings. It is resulting in a lot of stairs A lot of Mm. difficult stairs. So not just if you have a mobility device, but also if you have something like arthritis. Like the stairs are hard in many of these spaces. Extremely narrow paths, extremely low or very high ceilings, depending on where you are, right? But preserving that character of those old spaces is an accessibility problem in many instances. And there's a real architectural discussion to be had about how to best do that. We also have huge issues with regards to employment. At an ADAAA, the Amendment Act we were talking about earlier, congressional hearing, Naomi Earp, chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, testified that the employment of persons with disabilities has presented the greatest ADA challenge because we wanted to increase the employment of people with disabilities. But low employment really isn't sufficient. You have seen a drop. There has been a drop in the unemployment rate among people with disabilities. But the problem is, is that their rate is still too high. Only 40% of adults with disabilities in their prime working age have a job compared to 79% of all prime age adults. And even if there is employment, they make much less money. They're not paid as much and as fairly as people without disabilities. And there are lots of issues there, but two of them are things that we can do something about in pretty short order. The first is that there's a loophole in federal law allowing employers to get a waiver, a special certificate, to pay workers with disabilities less than the federal minimum wage. 
These workers can get paid on their productivity or at a rate per piece, like in kind of old manufacturing environments. And the rules around this waiver program do not apply to people who do not have disabilities. This is federally sanctioned discrimination against people with disabilities around pay. More than 300,000 workers with disabilities are being paid below the federal minimum wage in the United States right now. The other issue in employment for people with disabilities is that we still rely on so many unwritten social norms in evaluating people's fit for a position, their capacity for leadership, and their overall job performance. We just have baked in prejudices and antiquated ideas about what it means for somebody to have the right fit with our company culture. And Mm -hmm. that is very harmful to people with disabilities. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. 
Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So in addition, we have social security rules that trigger reductions or complete losses of benefits for people with disabilities if they get married. That's another thing that we could fix pretty easily. We have all of these issues around education. And again, I want to recommend our episodes on the IDEA to get into those in much more detail. And we talk a lot on The Nuanced Life about the obstacles that parents have to go through, the time, the money, the education they need to advocate for their children with disabilities inside the school system. Yeah, it's like an entire language that you need to learn. It's an entire form of advocacy that you have to build a skill set around. I've had such a minor interaction with this, and it's still exhausting just the same. So we, anyway, we really, really have a lot further to go. What we want you to know for the fifth thing is there are many ways that we can work towards disability justice. And the first thing we need to think differently about is disabilities, Dorian Taylor, a disability justice advocate, says we need to stop talking about special needs. They are not privileges. We are talking about access and everyone wants and needs access. Everyone wants and needs access. This is from an article on the ADA anniversary by Naomi Ishisaka. What if every job asked every person if they had access needs and helped to meet them? What if every school asked every student? And what if it were just a normal part of our daily processes? And, you know, This is something I think about a lot because I have a child with a disability and I don't want him to be seen as something. I don't want him to think of himself or his disability as a problem that needs to be solved. Um, I don't want to talk about him or treat him like he's something I'm trying to fix or that I'm trying to just make different. It's really, really hard. And I just don't want to think about him like that. And I don't think anybody deserves to be thought about like that by their family by their community, or by their government. Because we all have a right to exist, and none of us are burdens. And, you know, we talked about this in our education system. I feel like everybody needs, every student needs their own IEP, because we're not, there is no normal. There is no normal. There is only us. There is only, you know, a group of human beings doing the best they can. And I wish, you know, that we could follow the lead of disability advocates and just people who are showing us a different way to live and a different way to think about our fellow human beings. I wish I could go back and give to the version of myself that worked in HR some of this language, because I think a lot of times what happens when you're in HR and you get a request for an accommodation from an employee, you get in this tight spot between wanting to meet the needs of that employee and also knowing that folks in management are not going to want to spend the money to do that. And I wish I could go back and give myself this language about access because I entertained while in HR so many requests, some of them quite expensive, that were about people's comfort. 
Everything from the temperature of the building to their preference on the ripeness of fruit to their favorite pens to chairs, you know, being more ergonomic, like things that were that mattered to me. It all mattered to me because you want your workforce to be happy and comfortable. But if you want your workforce to be happy and comfortable, how can you not invest whatever it is you need to invest in making sure that it's available to everybody? So that's another thing that we can do to work toward disability justice is get out of that scarcity mindset, especially in education, fighting that tendency to think of needs of students with disabilities as in competition for resources with the needs of students without disabilities. It is not an extra to provide service to every student. So All of us as parents need to support inclusive classrooms. We also need to recognize the impact of overlapping barriers. So people who have disabilities and are Black and are LGBTQ and are poor face compounding marginalization and are going to have different needs to achieve real equity for them. And I think that that intersectionality is what is so difficult. It's so difficult in every space, but particularly this one, because I I think it's really hard in issues of identity because we treat everything in this very binary way. If you are this, you are not this. But sometimes if you are this, you are also this and this and this. You know, we might check boxes <laughs> on some forms, but in our lives, like we don't live inside boxes, right? And when our identities, especially when there is intersection in our identities, it's just going to it's going to shift and change and we'll have to adapt and our priorities will be different depending on different situations. And we just have to give each other the space for that and to to let people be the experts in their own lives and in their own identities and the ways in which they intersect. So we talked about the need for accessibility in digital spaces. We also need to care about voting accessibility. There is about a Mm -hmm. five-point gap between people with and without disabilities in terms of voting rates. Polling places are still not as accessible as they should be, and every layer of registration and ID requirements impose additional barriers. There is a writer at Forbes who does so much work in the disability space that I find so helpful. His name is Andrew Polrang. And one of the things that he said that really struck me is that It simply requires a higher level of commitment, work, and perseverance for disabled people to vote than for most non-disabled voters. A higher level of commitment, work, and perseverance, that that should not be. I think that higher level of perseverance is a great overarching theme of all five things. The 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 higher level of perseverance from the activism, the higher level of perseverance it takes to enforce the ADA, the higher level of perseverance... We still need in continuing the work of the ADA. And those are things that we're all going to talk about and share perspectives on in Tuesday's episode. We'll be back with you then. In between now and then, you can read our newsletter, sync up with us on social media, and we hope that you have a great weekend. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, 
Kelly Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Ladau, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Julie Haller, Jared Minson. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.